Let's take a look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. We're continuing our series on finding your purpose. God made you for a reason. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with whether or not you're married or how many kids you have if you have kids. And it doesn't have to do with what you do for a living. And it doesn't have to do with how you look or how much money you make. You were created for specific good works that God created ahead of time, prepared for you to do. And your good works that He made you for are different than mine, and mine are different than yours. And it's an exciting thing to think of that before you were ever born, God had all these plans for you. Plans to change eternity. And you get to do that. And we've been talking about how to find those pur- that purpose that He created you for. Um, the last couple of weeks, we've talked about how to make decisions that don't get in the way of God's purpose, how to hear His voice, know His will. I don't usually say this because I'm, I know that I'm not, my sermons are not the be- most important thing about your relationship with Christ. But in this case, I would say, if you missed any of them, go back and listen. You can get on the podcast, you can watch on the, on the website, um, because These are some important messages, not because I preach them, but because I really believe a lot of Christians are just sort of drifting through life, doing their best to serve God, obey His rules, but they don't really know why they're here. So go back and listen, pray about this, get involved in Awaken in a couple of weeks, and that will help. But today, I want to talk about one thing, the one main thing that gets in the way of us living out God's purpose. So I want to start with a little public confession, all right? I hope this doesn't make you uncomfortable, but we're going to publicly confess a particular sin, those of us who are guilty of it. So raise your hand if you are an idol worshiper. Okay, there's, there's more of you here than in the first service. So um, <laughs> I don't know what that says, but um, just so you know, if you, if you were someone who didn't raise your hand, idol worshiping is not simply bowing down before a statue, offering a sacrifice to some false god. That's the way we think of it in religious terms. But idolatry is so much more. And let me give you just a, one Scripture verse to back that up. Colossians 3.5, Paul writes and says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So if our greed, whenever we want more than we have, and we're not happy with what we currently possess, if that is a form of idolatry, then what else is? Let me just tell you from the outset, my goal is pretty straightforward. My goal is that by the end of the day, every one of us, by the end of this worship service, every single one of us would walk out of here saying, okay, I have a pretty good idea what my idols are, and I I have a plan to deal with them and to move forward in greater devotion to Christ. So three questions we're going to look at. And by the way, you can expect to get mad at me today because I'm going to say something that makes you mad. If you're not at least mildly annoyed, I haven't done my job. So that said, um, you know, I hope McDonald's is hiring. I do need to feed my family. So uh, three questions we're going to deal with. What is idolatry? What's wrong with idolatry? Why is this such a big deal to God? And how do we identify the idols? that are in our lives. So number one, what is idolatry? Verse 25 that we just read out of Romans. Um, Actually, we haven't read it yet, have we? Yeah, let's read that. How about that? Romans chapter 1, verse 21. The context here is Paul is writing to Christians who are both Jewish and Gentile. And he's talking here and saying, this this is what is true of people who are outside of the body of of believers, outside of people, you know, they worship other gods, they worship other things, and they don't worship the one true God. So verse 21, 
says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So right there in verse 25, you see the definition of idolatry. It's worshiping created things instead of the Creator. Put it in the terms of the Old Testament. The first commandment of the Ten Commandments, the first one says, don't put any other gods before Him. I read a book several years ago by Tim Keller that was the best book I've read on this subject. It's called Counterfeit Gods. He defines idolatry as making anything, even a good thing, into an ultimate thing. So you may, you may have something that's a very good thing in your life, but if it's not God and you make it your ultimate thing, that has become an idol for you. So let me give you some examples of idolatry that are prevalent in our culture today. Number one, right out of the box, profit slash wealth, money, gain, bling bling, however you want to define it. We worship the almighty dollar. And we know that because that's what we sacrifice to. We sacrifice our integrity to make a sale, to get ahead. We sacrifice our families because we've got to work more hours. We sacrifice our mental and emotional health because work is killing us. We sacrifice our relationship with God because we're working when we should be serving Him. And it's all to make more. It's all to make more. We say we say to ourselves, this is about providing, being a good provider for my family, but it's really about our one true God, which is I need more. Number two, there's sex. If, if profit and wealth aren't the number one God of American culture, then sex certainly is. We have taken something that God created, something beautiful, something that was intended to bind one man and one woman together in marriage, make them one flesh. They would share something with one another they never shared with anybody else and never would that would have the potential of producing new life, that would offer them enjoyment and fulfillment with one another. And we've taken that and we've turned it into a false God that is destroying our culture. Because we've essentially said that, that sex is no longer a sacred thing. Sex is, a, is an inalienable right that every human being deserves free and unrestricted sexual expression as long as it's with a consenting partner. And it doesn't matter what society's always said. It doesn't matter what the Word of God says. It doesn't matter what it does to our bodies or to our families. We are to follow our hearts uh, you know, like the, there's a, I won't name him, but a famous celebrity that, that left his wife for someone else. And he said, I'm sorry, the heart wants what it wants. And that's our ethic today. The heart wants what it wants. And look what it's doing to culture because we've made a God out of sex. We've got social dysfunction, families being destroyed. We've got disease and unwanted pregnancies. Abortion is a part of this. So many unwanted children. So much emotional hurt, so much wreckage. This whole Me Too movement and all the, all the sexual harassment and sexual assault that's going on, it's because we've decided, I deserve what I want, no matter what anyone else says. Think I could make a sermon out of that? Yeah, probably so. Children. Children are a false god. You didn't see that one coming, did you? Children can be a false god, and if you don't believe me, go to a children's sporting event. Go to one of those little girls' uh, beauty pageants. 
sit in on a parent-teacher conference at school, and we measure our success, we measure our joy, we measure our self-worth based on whether our kid is getting ahead of that kid. And we want our kids to be the best because we worship them, because that's where our true God is. And then there's food. Yes, food can be a God. And I'm, I'm not going to quote uh, statistics about obesity and diabetes and heart disease, and I'm not going to talk about calorie counts, because we all know that we're going to say amen, and then we're going to go order a double cheeseburger with extra bacon and the big milkshake or a big plate of sour cream enchiladas. And tonight, during the game, we're going to eat so many chips and dips it could kill a horse. Because it's the Super Bowl and it's only once a year. And have you ever noticed that all of our American holidays have to do with eating too much? You ever thought about that? And some of you are like, I didn't hear a single word you said after sour cream enchiladas. I'm still stuck on that. <laughs> and we can't say no because we know it's killing us. We know it's making us miserable, but we can't say no. It's there. I have to eat it. And then there's hobbies. Now, guys, and it's mostly us guys. Some of you ladies have a problem with this, but it's mostly us men. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a hobby. I've got several myself. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with enjoyment. We're not, we're not middle-aged Puritans, middle, uh, you know, the medieval Puritans who thought having fun was a sin. I just, I'm just saying that your golf game, your video game console, your bass boat, your vacation home, your car, your gun rack, your antique collection, whatever it is that you enjoy doing in your time off, that can become your God. And you know how you know it's your God? Because you get mad if you're not able to do it as often as you want to, or you get mad because you did do it and it didn't go the way you wanted it to, or it gets in the way of your relationships with the people you should love the most, or it gets in the way of your relationship with God Himself. And then there's political ideology. That is a serious false God, especially for evangelical Christians today. Can we be honest? Because I know a lot of evangelical Christians who, who are absolutely committed to their beliefs. They know what they believe. They study it. They, they pray about it. They're evangelistic about it. They try to convert others to their cause. And I'm not talking about their Christianity. I'm talking about their political belief system. That's what their true heart is for. I know a lot of Christians who can't really tell you what God is doing in their lives, but they can tell you what they were saying on Fox News or MSNBC this morning, whichever side they fall on. Political ideology has become a God to so many people. And, and you know that's the case if the people who think differently than you aren't just wrong, they're evil. They're not just, they're not just mistaken. They're not just misinformed. They hate our country and want to bring it down. That's a sure sign that political ideology has become your God. And then there's religion. Yes, religion can be a false god. And if you don't believe me, ask the people who are most opposed to Jesus. Actually, you can't ask them. They're not here. Um, the people most opposed to Jesus were the most religious people of their day. They, they believed in the right God. They believed the right doctrines about that God. They performed all the right rituals. They kept all the rules better than anybody else aside from Jesus on earth. And yet nobody on earth was more distant from God's salvation. Why? Because their God was self-righteousness. Their God was religiosity. Their God was saying, I'm better than you because I'm in the synagogue every time and my heart is pure and I have never been ritually unclean and I do everything right. 
And there's a whole lot of people, I think, who put faith in their religious observance and haven't ever met their Savior. Tim Keller, he writes it, he said it better than anybody else, anything can be an idol because the heart is an idol factory. It just cranks out idols and we've got to be aware of that. So second question, what is so wrong with idolatry? I mean, we sang all these songs earlier about crown Him Lord of Lords. We sang about He alone can rescue. Why are we so insistent that there's only one God? And why does God in the Bible insist on being number one? Why won't He, why won't he brook any opposition at all? Why does the Old Testament say several times that God is a jealous God? Since when is jealousy a, good, a, a virtue? Doesn't that sound like a possessive teenage boyfriend? But there is such a thing as righteous jealousy. Probably none of us have ever experienced it, but there is such a thing as righteous jealousy, and that is the jealousy of God. Now, let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. So imagine, imagine you're a man who is in love with a woman who is under the control of an evil man, and he keeps her locked up. He abuses her physically and, and emotionally. He keeps her addicted to substances that keep her enslaved to him. He even sells her to his friends whenever he needs a little extra cash. And you love this woman, and you win her heart, and she becomes convinced that in you there's a better life, and she leaves that slavery that she's in, and she becomes your wife. And you, you just love that woman, and you see her blossom because of the first time she's being loved, and the first time she's... She's being treated as human. And then one day, after several years go by, you, you accidentally find out that this man is communicating with your wife again. And he's trying to persuade her to come back. And she's not rejecting him yet. Now let me ask you something. If you're that guy, if you're that man, do you say, oh well, I guess we can share? No, not if you love her. The rage that you feel about that, the sorrow that you feel, are those, are, those good, are those good emotions? In most cases, rage and sorrow are not good, but I'd say in this case, that's righteous anger and righteous sorrow. Because you're not angry that somebody has what you want or wants what you have. You're angry and you're sad that this person you love might go back to what can destroy her. And that is the jealousy of God right there. God hates idolatry because He knows what it does to us. You see, He's God. He, he knows how we were created, how we were wired. He knows that only when we put Him first can we experience life abundant. And He knows that if anything else is on the throne of our hearts, it will destroy us. And you might say, well, hey, listen, I'm, I'm pursuing this right now, and it's pretty fun, actually. It's pretty fulfilling. And I would agree that sometimes idols can be satisfying, but only in the short term. You see, there's a difference between sorrow and despair. And I want to tell you what the difference is. The, the difference is that when you experience sorrow, it's because you've lost something you love, but you haven't lost your ultimate thing. You lost something you love, but you've, got, you've still got your main thing. But when you experience despair, it's because the, the thing you've based your life on, the thing you counted on, the thing that most brought you joy and identity is now gone, and there's no consolation for that. No matter what your friends say or your family, no matter how much the people who love you try to wrap their arms around you, they can't bring you back because you've lost what your life was built upon. You know what the difference between sorrow and, idol and, and despair really are? It's idolatry. If you, if you are an idol worshiper, I guarantee you, if you base your life on anything other than God, 
I guarantee you, you will experience despair. If you worship the one true God and keep Him first, you will never experience despair. Will you experience sorrow? Absolutely. That's part of life. But you'll overcome it through the joy that He gives you. Give you an example. In his book, Keller talks about a woman he knew, a friend of his, who desperately wanted children. Desperately wanted children and couldn't have any. She was just convinced, my goal, my, my purpose in life is to, is to bear children and to raise them up into godly living. And eventually she did end up having kids. She got pregnant way past the age that her doctors said was safe and she bore two healthy children and she poured her life into raising those kids. I mean, she was devoted to raising them up to be happy and successful and well-adjusted and she drove them. She drove them hard because she wanted them to achieve. They, she hovered over them. She wanted everything in their life to go just right. And whenever one of her kids would, would not measure up, it would, it would hurt her because she would take it as a personal failure. And ultimately, both of her kids rejected her because they just couldn't take the pressure of having a mom who just wouldn't let them live, who, who tried to force them into her own narrow mold because her identity was built on these two kids. And can you imagine how devastating it was for her? Because that was her life. And that was gone. And that's going to be the case if anything else is your life other than God because your kids will grow up. Even if they don't reject you, they're going to grow up and go away. Your health will fail. Your money will go away. Everything you base your life on other than Jesus Christ, He is the only thing that lasts forever. He is the only thing that will never let you down. And that's why idolatry is so terrible. And that's why God hates it so much because He knows what it does to us. So the final question how do we identify the idols in our lives? Because let's just admit, we're all blind to our idols. If you're not a religious person, you're, you're probably sitting there saying, how can you say I'm an idol worshiper? I don't worship anything. Yes, actually you do. There's something in your life that's ultimate, which if it was gone would devastate you. And if you're religious, like most of the people in here, you've got to be careful because for a lot of us, we have to admit we're religious for a reason. We've got an agenda. I'm serving God because I want good health. I'm serving God because I want a better life. I'm serving God because I want to get married to the right person someday. I'm serving God because I want a happy family. Well, if, you, if that's really your mentality, God's not your God. Whatever you're serving Him to get to is. Idolatry is sneaky. So how do we identify the idols in our lives? First of all, just pray. And pray that honest prayer and say, Lord, I need for your Holy Spirit. I need for the Holy Spirit to come and just show me what it is in my heart that competes for my allegiance. What is it that I sometimes put ahead of you? And I did that a few years ago. And let me just fully confess, I came up with five things. Not one, not two, not three. Five different things that were competing with God for the, for the allegiance of my heart. So pray and ask God, and then ask yourself the following questions. First of all, what brings me happiness, meaning, and identity? What, brings, what makes me happy? What, what do I look forward to? What do, what do I identify with? When I prayed that prayer and, and God gave me that list of five idols that I needed to deal with, I'm not going to give you the whole list. Y'all don't get that yet. But I'll tell you one. One of, one of my idols is approval. I love it when I feel like people think I did a good job when people are happy with me, when we're good relationally. And, and when we're not good, when you're mad at me, boy, I, I, I can't sleep at night. I toss and turn. What do I do? What do I say? How do I make things right? 
And you realize what a prison that is. If I continue along that path, what a prison it is to live that way. Because let's face it, I'm human. I'm going to let you down. You're going to be mad at me. You're going to be disappointed in me at times. I don't want to live with that kind of despair when I let you down and you get upset. At the same time, in an equal sense, I can't be a good pastor if approval is my God because I'm not leading you toward Christ. But secondly, I can't make decisions for what's best for the church without being paralyzed by, well, this person will be happy if we do this, but this person will be upset. That's not leadership. That's not what I'm called to do. It occurred to me how much approval meant to me, and I had to confess it before Christ. Second question, ask yourself, what do I place my hope in? What do I daydream about? What is, what is the source of all my expectations and hopes and dreams? Pastor to church once, and there was a, a young family that had started attending, and we were excited because we didn't have enough young families in that church, and they attended for a while, and all of a sudden they were gone. We just didn't see them for a while. And then one day, I was in the grocery store, and I saw the mom of that family. And y'all, let me just tell you this from a preacher's perspective. There is a look that you have on your face when you run into your preacher at the grocery store. And I've seen it. It's like, oh no, there's the preacher. And I haven't been in the church, and uh, yeah. And you have that look on your face, and I always see it, and I always like to walk up and say something really helpful like, hey, sure have been missing you lately. So I did that. And she sort of looked at the ground, and then she said, well, I know, and, and I know we need to be there, but the truth is, our middle daughter has gotten into softball, and she's a pitcher, and she's really, really good. And so we've gotten her into one of these elite leagues, and they play all their tournaments are on weekends. A lot of them are on Sundays, and even those that aren't on Sundays, they're often way out of town, and so we have to spend the night. And she said, I, I know, I know it's I wish we could be in church, but the truth is she's so good. We think, my husband and I think she could get a college scholarship someday, and so we really have to, we have to invest in this. The girl was eight years old. And we laugh, but all kinds of parents are doing the same thing. They're saying, this is our ticket. This is our way. Now, I'm not here to pick on you parents who have your kids on youth sports, okay? I love sports. My son plays basketball. I played sports when I was a kid, little, from Little League all the way to high school football. I love it. It's good stuff. We just, as parents, we need to make a covenant with one another as Christian parents that we're going to say to ourselves, number one, what am I doing to make sure my kids know that Jesus is more important than that game or that instrument if they're a musician or that pair of dancing shoes or whatever? What am I doing to make sure they know that Jesus comes first? And secondly, and more, just as importantly, what am I doing to make sure that they know that if I'm really devoted to Jesus and I want to follow His purpose for my life, being a part of a local body of believers is non-negotiable. Because i got news for you guys. Someday your kids are going to grow up and they're going to leave the nest and you're going to wonder, why are my kids not putting my grandkids in church? Why are they somewhere else every weekend. I, I wish I saw them. I wish I knew they were in church somewhere. Well, is it any wonder when they were growing up, we fed them every signal that said church is optional. You do it when it's convenient. And then it becomes, well, show up on Christmas, maybe Easter. What is your God? What brings you hope? Third question, what makes me most afraid and angry? 
What makes me most afraid or angry? If you are terrified that you're someday going to get hurt and you won't be able to exercise and then you'll gain a bunch of weight, then you've made an idol out of physical fitness. If you think about the next election and you say, well, if those guys win, this country won't be worth living in anymore, you've made an idol out of your political party. If you feel hatred towards a person who got a promotion you wanted, you've made an idol out of your career success. I know of a woman who is a devout Christian who had a, had a daughter, has a daughter who the daughter and the daughter's husband felt called to missions. And so they moved to another continent to serve the Lord, to plant churches and spread the gospel and took their little daughter with them, this woman's granddaughter. And I haven't seen this family in years, but for years, every time I would see the husband, I would ask him, how are y'all doing? And the first thing he would say every time was, well, my wife's not doing well. She's just, she's mad at God. She's still upset because she doesn't understand why God would take away her daughter and her grandchild. That's despair. That's the definition of despair. She was inconsolable. She couldn't understand why God would take away her daughter and her grandchild, which I can understand that emotion. But she had made family her idol. And it came before her allegiance to the Lord. It made her afraid. It made her angry. What makes you afraid? What do you think you couldn't live without? What makes you angry? What do you get threatened by? So let me try this again. Raise your hand if you're an idol worshiper. Yay, you listened. So what do we do? I'm not just going to leave it there. What do we do about that? See, in biblical times, it was pretty simple. You take your idol, you, you, take your idol, you smash it, you burn it, you get rid of it. You can't do that with most of the idols we've talked about this morning. If family is your idol, God doesn't want you to abandon your family. If food is your idol, God doesn't want you to starve. If career is your idol, God doesn't want you to quit work and be a bum. That's not the answer. So what do you do? I think, I think the key to making your idol smaller in your life is to make God bigger. And when I confessed my five idolatries before the Lord and just said, Lord, I just want you to know, I just want you to know you're enough for me. You are enough for me. I'm running to your arms. I'm running to your arms. The riches of your love will always be enough. Nothing compares to your embrace. I didn't say those exact words, but that's what I was praying. That was the emotion. And immediately, and over time, those idolatries started to get smaller. I'm not saying they're not still there. I'm not saying it doesn't still trip me up once in a while, but it started to become less and less important because I dealt with it. And I said, Lord, what can I do to serve you more committedly? And if you want to know how to be more devoted to Christ, one more time, I'll say it. Sign up for that Awaken workshop. That'll be all about serving Him first of all. So let me just tell you one last thing. Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan by His cousin John the Baptist. This was before He ever began His public ministry. It's around the age of 30. He'd been working as a carpenter, we believe, up to that time. He's baptized... The heavens open, the Holy Spirit descends as a dove and lands on him. The voice from heaven of the heavenly Father cries out and, and booms throughout the region and says, this is my son who I love, listen to him. And you would think that Jesus would be so fired up by that, that whole event that he would go and start healing and preaching, but he didn't. The first thing he did after that was he went straight into the desert by himself and fasted 40 days. 40 days 
of deprivation, getting his heart right and his body and mind and soul all aligned because he had a three-year journey ahead of him that would lead straight to the cross and he wanted to be ready. And while he was out there in that wilderness, he wasn't alone because the devil showed up too. Because the devil's smarter than you and I and he knew, he knew what the stakes were. If I can just get the Son of God to sin just one time because he's in human flesh now, it's my one opportunity. He's got actual human desires, actual human emotions, weak human flesh. If I can get him to sin just one time, there will be no righteous sacrifice for sins. There will be no spotless sacrifice for the sins of humanity and and people will be cursed forever. And he hit Jesus with everything he had. Jesus was at his absolute weakest point. This was the time when he could have gotten him to stumble. And we don't know everything that Satan tried to tempt Jesus to do. We do know that Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way just like we are. But three specific temptations are mentioned in the Gospels, and one of them was the devil stood before Jesus and said, if you'll bow down before me, I'll give you the whole world. Now Jesus knew, and the devil knew Jesus knew, that the devil doesn't have the authority to give him the world, but I think what Satan was saying was, I'm persuasive, and and I've been lobbying people and persuading people for centuries that that they shouldn't obey God and they should reject God, but but I will... I will change my tune. I will, I will work on people. I'll start with every king, every emperor, every prince, and I will get every one of them. I will persuade them to worship you and serve you and obey you. And all you have to do is worship me. Now think about what that meant for Jesus. That meant he could have had worldwide worship and allegiance, worldwide people following him without the cross. All gain, no pain. Think about how tempting that had to be. And yet Jesus said, I know what Deuteronomy says. Deuteronomy says, worship the Lord and serve Him only. And He rejected that temptation. He rejected that idolatry. He said no to the idolatry of His flesh that said, I I don't want to be pierced with nails. He said no to the idolatry of His ego that said, yeah, I'd love to have people worshiping me instead of rejecting me. He said no to the idolatry of ease and comfort, which by the way is another one of my five idolatries. He chose the cross instead of a crown. He chose death so we could have life. And He did that. He did that so we could be saved. But He also did that. Not to save us just from hell and from death and from sin. He did it to save us from these idols we've been talking about. Because here's what happens. When when you identify an idol and you think, well, okay, this just isn't going to be as important to me anymore. You can't do it on your own. You have to turn to Him. And you have to say, Lord, just like You took my place at the cross, I need You to take my place now and live through me and give me the strength to put this thing in its proper position in life so You can be back on the throne of my life so I can live the way You called me to live. His cross still saves. His cross is the only thing that does. So let's call on Him right now.